and welcome to On The Ledge podcast, bringing you botany to your bedroom and cacti to your kitchen since 2017. I'm Jane Perrone, your host. Yes, this is how I sound. This is not just how I answer the phone. I am bringing you this week an episode on the wonderful world of succulents that come from South Africa and Madagascar. To find out why you need to be a little bit careful with that Euphorbia sap, why cordisiform plants look different in the wild, and why growing your succulents in pumice may be the answer to all those overwatering issues. We visit the greenhouse of Bob Potter, treasurer of the International Euphorbia Society and a very, very fine succulent collector. I'll also be answering a listener question about how to make a climbing plant make friends with a moss pole. And we'll also be airing the second of our Meet the Listener interviews with lovely listener Bobby. Thanks to my new Patreon subscribers this week. That's Coach, Sal, Elizabeth and Bronwyn. It is truly wonderful to add you to the Patreon clan of people who support the show financially every month. And those people are very valuable because they make the show happen. Without them, I could not make On The Ledge. So a big shout out to all my patrons this week. It's Thank You Patrons Week on Patreon. So I should emphasise how much I owe you guys. You really make the show possible. So well done. Give yourself a pat on the back. Go make yourself an extra nice cup of tea and bask in the glory of being a jolly nice person. Thank you also to Meerkat Jungle, who left a lovely five-star review for On The Ledge on Apple Podcasts. Your review made me laugh, Meerkat Jungle, because you were apparently planning to turn yourself into the authorities for crimes against plants, and then you found On The Ledge, and apparently it's been your salvation. And you also praise my show notes, which I'm very grateful about because I do put a lot of work into the show notes. So thank you for pointing that out in your review. If you want to leave a review for On The Ledge, I would be ecstatic for you to do so. Every time I see a new review, it gives me a little bit of a shot in the arm and helps me get through those long editing sessions. And it also helps other people find the show. So thank you to all of you who've left reviews in the past. And if this is spurring you on to think about leaving a review, then good. I'm glad to hear it. I first met Bob Potter at Cactus World Live, which you will remember took place uh, in the late summer. And I did a live show from there. It was great fun. And Bob was manning the stall of the International Euphorbia Society, as well as selling some plants. So I bought a couple of plants off him and invited myself to his greenhouse, as one does when one is the host of a houseplant podcast. Bob founded and ran the nursery Two Bees Exotics for 35 years before retiring from the trade in 2016 but he still very much has an interest in these plants and he's the treasurer of the International Euphorbia Society and has a very impressive greenhouse full of succulents behind his home in Woking, Surrey, which is a few miles southwest of London if your British geography is a little bit sketchy. I visited a couple of weeks ago and Bob was so kind to give me a wonderful tour of his plants, talk about his obsession with these succulents. And yes, he did give me a few plants. Oh gosh, yes, I love my job. I'm so lucky. 
So as I always say, do check out the show notes at janeperone.com as you listen for pictures and details of the plants we're talking about. And you can also find details there about the International Euphorbia Society because euphorbias are so popular now and many of the things that we call cacti are actually euphorbias. So it's definitely a genus of plants that's on the up. And I felt really lucky to spend an hour or so pottering with Bob Potter in his greenhouse. This is a, a wonderland of spininess. <laughs> what does your collection focus on? Well, basically, most of the, most of the collection is based on succulent plants. Um, you know, most people will be familiar with the term cacti and succulents. There are a few cactus plants here, but the majority of plants that I grow are succulents. And basically, uh, again. I suppose specifically it comprises a lot of South African and Madagascan plant material. And Madagascan plant material has been one of my passions for many years now. So I'm very much into those sort of plants. So what is it about the Madagascan climate that makes it produce plants like we see in front of us? Some of them we've got a lot of cordisiforms, spininess. What was, I've never considered what the climate or ecosystems like in Madagascar well you've got to realize that Madagascar is the fourth largest island in the world mm. um, it's over a thousand miles long so I mean there is a bit of a climatic uh, difference between the uh, north and the south and from east to west even um, in terms of rainfall and stuff like that but generally speaking um, you've got to consider the place to be quite warm um, due to its location so I mean in terms of keeping plants from Madagascar I always tend to keep them on the warmer side. Now, I suppose the absolute minimum temperature that I would really want to take my Madagascan stuff down to is 10 degrees C. But um, in this greenhouse that we're sitting in here at the moment, um, we're sort of keeping about uh, 16, 17 degrees C. And I think that's probably a better way of actually keeping these plants uh, alive over a winter period because that is generally for us... Uh, the worst time of the year to keep these plants going. And how did you get into this particular branch of the cacti and succulent world? <laughs> well, I mean, it started for me at a very, very early age. Um, my grandfather, we lived with my grandfather uh, uh, when my mother and father uh, were married and they had to live with my grandfather and grandmother because they couldn't afford a house at the time. And I was uh, brought up with my grandfather, who was one of these great amateur gardeners. And he had a small greenhouse in his garden, and he grew all sorts of stuff in the greenhouse. But he did have a few cactus plants in there. And I remember, and I've got pictures from a very early age, but I've virtually sort of standing in nappies helping him um, in his greenhouse with his plants. And he then produced a Chamaceria sylvestriae, um, Peanut cactus is commonly known. You don't actually see a great deal of them. You don't. I know, no, that's um, very true. What yeah. happened to the pig? It used to be one of the commonest yes, things, didn't I know, it, when it's I was strange, a kid? strange, isn't it, really? Where have they all gone? Yeah, <laughs> But, um, I mean, this thing used to flower so prolifically every year, and he used to go and stick it in front of the fire in the living room and make all these flowers open. And I was um, obviously really taken with this at a very young age, you know. 
And I was so taken with the cactus plants that he sort of made me guardian of the cactus plants at an early age. So you could probably say from about three, four years old, I've been sort of brought up with cactus plants. And then it was a natural progression from there, I think, to sort of cactus, succulents, and then dropping the cactus to a degree and then sort of concentrating on the succulent plants. We've got a wonderful collection here. There's lots of things that are drawing my eye. Let's just have a look at some of these cordisiform plants, um, first of all, because I know lots of listeners are really into uh, some of these cordisiforms. There's some big ones here. What's your favourite of these these cordexes we see? Well, I mean, I do quite like, uh, for example, this sort of bulbous thing here. Um, This is a Madagascan plant. That's uh, a xerocyceus. Xerocyceus pubescens, and so you get this sort of almost rounded ball-shaped plant. Um, it does tend to vine quite a bit, and it can get sort of a little bit out of hand, so I sort of <laughs> tend to tr- trim the vines down. It's huge. That's like a sort of a, I don't know, is it quite not quite fo- a flattened football, I yeah, suppose, yeah, the size right, of it. Yes, and I mean similarly, that's from Madagascar, that one, and I mean similarly you get a similar looking thing like the Fokia the Fokia edulis from uh, South Africa. Um, but of course, what you've got to consider is that in their natural habitat, most of this plant is buried underground. You don't actually see right. this cordisiform plant, uh, or, or the, the, the cordex as such. Mm, mm. It's, it's usually underground. And I mean, as sort of hobbyists or growers of these sort of plants, we tend to raise this material above ground to sort of um, enhance it a little mm. bit, if you like. But... Um, if you look at some of the smaller stuff, for example, if you come across over here, um, where I've got uh, some smaller plants buried out, um, things like pachypodiums, smaller pachypodiums, mm. pachypodium brevicauli, I mean, they, they can get quite large in habitat, mm. but uh, they're very slow growing here, or tend to be from seed. But uh, some of the smaller cordisiforms, I actually do bury right up to their neck. Um, uh, which is more akin to the way they mm, sort of mm. uh, live in their natural environment. It's lovely the way you've got these bedded out here because oftentimes we don't see how plants would look in the wild. We see them in pots, but it's lovely to see things kind of displayed as they would be, dis- as you might see them in the wild. And I know you pot everything into pumice, is that right? Can you tell yes. me a bit about, about pumice and why that's yeah, good to you? Yeah, well, I think this is, a, this is always a bone of contention amongst uh, <laughs> It's <obvious>. controversial, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? <laughs> um, what do you, I mean, people often say, what do you grow your stuff in? What do you grow your plants in? Um, well, I think it's horses for courses for, in, a lot of, in a lot of instances for people because, I mean, I would probably be fair to say that over the years I've tried every combination there is. And I've used peat-based composts, I've used John Innes-style composts, I've used grit, gravel, you name it, anything I've mixed in with compost to try and sort of get the free-draining aspect that most people tend to say that you would need mm. with these sort of plants. But then... Recently, uh, I've just potted everything that I grow into this sort of uh, pumice material. And it has, from from my point of view, several advantages. It is free draining. Uh, When you water it, any excess water will run completely out of the bottom of the pot or drain through into the bottom of the bed. And you can actually see when it dries out as well quite Mm. easily. Um, you know, it will it will turn a darker colour when it's wetter, and it will re- 
come back lighter when it's a little drier. So you can, from my point of view, actually control the uh, the moisture content of your uh, potted material mm. a little bit better. The other thing I think is that uh, it tends to promote uh, quite a better root growth system. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you ever want to repot plant material as well, if you want to tip it out of a pot of pumice, you can just knock it out, shake the pumice away, and then you, you're not mm. sort of like got a cake of material that you mm. sometimes mm. get with um, peat-based composts and things like that. So I've uh, I've gone over to that completely, basically, mm. now. And I think a lot of the uh, hobbyists in the uh, cactus and succulent world are actually going over to it as well because... Um, I've sold quite a bit of this stuff to uh, many members of the society over the years, and mm. I think it's becoming more and more popular. Oh, that's interesting. And do you does that affect in terms of feeding? Does that affect your, the feeding in that yeah. there's no nutrients naturally yeah. in the pumice? Uh, yeah, that is that is one of the drawbacks, if you like, that you mm. do have to feed uh, a lot more than you would under normal right. circumstances. And I suppose, again, it depends on your conditions in the glasshouse. Because I mean, this is another thing. People say, "Well, after you water your plants, well." I can't tell you, you know, you've got to sort of see what happens in your own greenhouse because the greenhouse that we're standing in here at the moment, although it's the same size as another glass house that I have, the other glass house is a lot higher. Mm. And you would be quite surprised how different the climatic condition is in between the two, mm. between the mm. two greenhouses. So there's no hard and fast rules. Um, but yes, I mean... I would probably feed, I would say, every second watering. Mm. Maybe not in full strength of whatever Mm -hmm. feed you're going to be using, but maybe half-strength feed, and every time I water, I use half-strength feed Mm -hmm. every every two waters. Yeah. Okay, well, it's it's great to see, as I say, it's great to see this collection and see the plants in their situation as opposed to in a pot although i do love the pots the pots too and on the other side you've got this wonderful display more more cordisiforms more interesting spiny things tell me about some of your favorites from this side yes well of course there is quite a few potted plants here as well and um i think if i look along this line here i mean you know we are actually in a difficult time of the year. Well, not a difficult time of the year, but the time of the year when most of these plants are wanting to go dormant. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's going to be a lot of leaf drop on a lot of these plants. So they never look their best mm-hmm. uh, in the middle of November. Um, but one that has still retained quite a bit of its leaf is this one, for example, Euthorbia viridiflora from uh, way up on the top end of Madagascar. And, I mean, it just looks like a little miniature tree. Uh, so to me it's a fascinating looking plant full of leaf as you can see at the moment um, they will drop off eventually and some of the other plants <clears throat> if you go along a bit further here you've got a pachypodium pachypodium densiflorum out of Madagascar I mean it's just got this lovely fat sort of <laughs> body with these sort of protruding arms coming off again you can see the leaves are starting to drop perfectly natural mm. at this time of the year um, when they go into their dormancy. And the, the euphorbias are really, I guess, becoming more and more popular as in the cacti and succulent world. I suppose euphorbia milii is one of those ones that is very, well, certainly, again, I'm going back to my past, but was extremely popular at one point, wasn't yeah, it? Well, uh, and still is, really. Still is, I yeah. Mean, still is as a house plant. I mean, euphorbia milii, 
basically they've been hybridised to death over the years by the Dutch and the They Danes have been. I like was this. looking into yeah. that at one point because somebody was asking me for an idea on something and I said, I'm, I can't tell you anymore because it, there's so many different hybrids of yeah. this plant. Why yeah. was that the case? Is it because it's easy to hybridise? Yeah, I think there's that point. It's very free flowering, of course. Right, the, yeah. Uh, the, I mean, if you go back to sort of um, what... If you go back to the sort of, for example, Euthorbia splendens, which is mm. the, uh, the, the the crown of thorns, which everybody knows about, um, and again, that's a plant you don't actually see mm. in its entirety at this uh, uh, very much at this time. But the Millii types, as I say, they've been very much hybridised, and they will hybridise, or the Dutch or the Danes, in actual fact, will hybridise them with all sorts of larger flowered Euthorbias, like oh, Pauliana, right. um, and they produce. You could often see them in uh, in garden centres, uh, the millie-type, bushy-type plants mm. with much, much larger flowers. Very popular. I mean, they've got all sorts of colours coming on them as well now. So I think it was a natural thing. The millie-types actually do grow mm. quite well. Mm. Very well suited to houseplant culture. Yes, exactly, yeah. I mean, I guess that's one. I mean, I don't have any of those at the moment. Um, uh, they, But they have. I've had them in the past and they've been... Uh, wonderful houseplants and lots of colour so I can see why they're popular but I can also see the attraction of these slightly more shall we say exclusive euphobias <laughs> that I mean some of these are, must be quite old because they're, they're yeah. enormous yeah, well, are these been in your collection for a long time yes they have and I mean you know the fascination for me with euthorbias I mean euthorbiaceae is probably one of the larger plants mm. one of the largest plant families but if you take the euthorbia species generally um, you can get plants from very tiny geophytics, sort of underground tubers, very, very small tubers, maybe five centimetres, mm. two, three centimetres even, diameter. And then you're going up to large trees, mm. up mm. to sort of maybe 10 metres high. Mm. So there's such a range of, of growth modes amongst mm. the Euthorbiaceae. Um, and that's really, I think, for me, one of the fascinations. I mean, I love the sort of small geophysic, mm. geophytic types, which is quite easily um, turning around, looking into the bed that we've got here now. Uh, you know, there's lots of them, sort of oh, yes. very small um, uh, cordexes, basically. Most of it buried underground, mm. as you can see. Mm. But then if you look round on the other side, I mean, we haven't got anything monstrous in this greenhouse because... But you're, you're talking now now about euthorbias sort of getting up into sort of bushy, shrubby types uh, up to sort of maybe three, four, five feet high. Mm, mm. If you look in the bed at the back, you've got some lovely uh, oh, yes. euthorbias up there, which yeah. are um, sort of more columnar, columnar types. Uh, this lovely monodenium, for example. I know it's not a euthorbia species, although they do include it in mm. euthorbia these days, which <laughs> to me, frankly... I don't go along with it. However, that's another story. They're Taxonomy always, is... They'll always be monodeniums to me. Yes. Uh, but, I mean, this is a beautiful thing, the monodenium spinescens out of Tanzania. Um, it's just looking a fantastic mm. shrub. Um, and the uh, the Euthorbia venonifica next door to it, I mean, that's a West African plant. Mm. They tend to be a little bit more difficult to grow, the West African sort of stuff, but... Um, you know that's really looking quite nice. So the, you know you get a mode of growth like this, almost a, a, almost getting into tree-like proportions, and comparing it to sort of very tiny, tiny underground tubers. Tell me about this thing in this planted corner bed here with the 
giant leaves because oh, that yeah. is that is quite something. Yes, uh, Cyphostemma, Cyphostemma jatai. Yeah, they do. Uh, they do get uh, quite big. Some of the leaves. I mean, this one plants <laughs> right. out, and it's amazing how well these things do when they're planted out. I mean, if you just turn around and look at one in a pot. Oh yes. Okay. I mean, it's uh, not an uns- unsubstantial plant, but of course, it's being restricted. Mm. Um, and that one over in the bed was probably put in uh, a year ago at that sort of size so you can see the difference yes. in the leaf growth that it's I made mean, by being in a bed you know those gray green leaves they're probably i mean they're not rhubarb shaped but they're at least rhubarb size they aren't, are, they? aren't they they are yeah. very yeah. impressive yeah. Yeah. Um, and will those drop off eventually yeah they They'll will go off. yeah you can yeah. see it's already yeah that one's on the potted, potted one. one yes yeah they're, they're ready to come away um, so yes, they will come off, mm, and mm. Um, then they'll start up again next yeah. year. We'll be back to the succulents soon, but now we go from Bob to Bobby for our second meet the listener slot. Take it away, Bobby. Hi everyone, I'm Bobby from London. My passion for houseplants really started in about 2000 with aquascaping and aquatic planting. But over the years, that's really increased to include lots of different groups of houseplants, in particular aroids and begonias. Um, So much so that I started the UK Facebook group Aroid Adoration, which helps UK arid lovers share information and make connections and even swap and sell plants. Question one. There's a fire and all your plants are about to burn. Which one do you grab as you escape? Oh, Jane, that's such a mean question. Um, I think I have well over 100 house plants. Some of them have been so difficult to find because they're quite rare. Um, Others have resulted in really good friendships over the years and I think each one of them has their own little story to tell. Um, I think I would perish in my own indecision. Question two. What is your favourite episode of On The Ledge? Am I allowed to pick two? Um, They both happen to be double episodes. The first one is the visit to James Wong's flat. He... To me, he's such a, an influence and it's quite, it's really inspiring, particularly his work with aquatic planting and terrestrial houseplants. I love the way that he merges the two together um, and creates a beautiful aesthetic. The second one is the conversation with Peter D'Amato and carnivorous plants. I love carnivorous plants. I've got a few myself and... It's so interesting to learn about their evolution and how difficult they are can be to care for. So I particularly loved listening to those two episodes. Strictly speaking, Bobby, that's actually four episodes, but seeing as it's you, I'll let it go. Question three. Which Latin name do you say to impress people? I'm going to preface this by saying that if you're into aroids and begonias... There's such diverse groups of plants with so many species that some of them just don't have common names at all. So you kind of have to use scientific names. But the one I would say would be Philodendron Varsovecii aurea flavum. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Or Begonia Darth Vaderiana, purely because it's, ba- it's named after Darth Vader. Question four. Crassulation acid metabolism 
Ugartation. Okay, this is an easy one. Um, since I'm really into my aroids, it has to be gutation. Um, I remember getting my first colocasia and coming down in the morning and discovering little pools of water and thinking, what the hell is this? Um, after a little bit of research online, I discovered it was when the plant exudes water from the end of its leaves and thinking, wow, that's really cool. Um, but not one if you've got carpets. Question five. Would you rather spend £200 on a variegated monstera or £200 on 20 interesting cacti? You can probably guess that I would pick the variegated monstera over the 20 cacti. Not that I don't love and respect cacti and succulents, but I'm also guilty as I have a variegated monstera, so I would always spend that £200 on a variegated aroid. Bobby for taking part in Meet the Listener and if you fancy hearing your voice on On the Ledge then do drop me a line to ontheledgepodcast at gmail.com it's open to all and now back to my chat with Bob Potter of the International Euphorbia Society where I find out things not to do with a euphorbia what are the sort of health and safety with Euphorbias. Obviously, we've got the sap uh, and also the spines. Obviously, it's it's fairly straightforward, isn't it? You know, don't don't get yourself covered in the sap. No. Don't get yourself spiked. But no, there, is there true. anything more to it than that? Yeah, no, they do all have a milky sap, which um, is generally deemed to be um, uh, fairly toxic. Um, so, yeah, the answer is if you've got any cuts on your fingers or whatever, and you're messing about with euphorbias and uh, uh, or, or deleafing or anything like that, don't get the uh, sap into a cut because it does tend to sort of irritate and have stink. you been there with that <laughs> i have i think everybody who's touched them has been there with it yes particularly in the eyes don't yes. rub the eyes because then that can sting quite a lot mm, mm. and um one other thing to bear in mind is that some of the uh some of the euthorbias uh some of the columnar euthorbias uh, have got quite strong pressure uh in the in the capillaries and if you take a cut in you can almost get a mist off of the uh, plant oh, really? and you won't see it and I did that once I took a cutting off an East African euthorbia chopped his head off and uh, without even knowing it for days afterwards I had this very strong stinging st- sensation oh in the eyes so it was definitely that misting uh, yes oh, the wow. plant. that's amazing well, well some of them are really toxic um, yeah, so the uh, euthorbia abdulkuri for example from Socotra is a particularly nasty one mm. so Mm. But generally speaking, I mean, they're not generally life-threatening, you know, but <laughs> no. they're just irritating. But uh, You just need to know yeah, what not to do. Yeah, you have to be a bit careful, yes, particularly if you've got children around mm. and stuff like that, mm. of course. Then. Yeah. And one other plant that was catching my eye was this super spiny specimen here. Um, tell me, is that is that a euphorbia or is that something else? It's so spiny. No, that's an aloaudia. That's oh. also from Madagascar. Okay. That's uh, aloaudia humbertii. It's um, it's a shrubby species. Uh, most of the Madagascan aloaudias tend to be <coughs> very columnar, mm-hmm. very upright. And, in fact, there's one. Oh, this yes. This is an aloaudia. This okay. is aloaudia montagnasii. So you can see their upright stems. I mean, this is only a baby compared to mm. the sort of size they get in uh, Madagascar. 
but that one remains the the uh, Humbertii remains um, bushy mm. as such. Mm. But yeah, it is quite quite uh, quite substantial spination on there. I can imagine that's, that's seeing off a few creatures that might want to yeah. nibble. Uh, oh, I can yeah. see the Indeed. I can see the point. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. And what else did I want to ask you about? I wanted to ask you about some of these sort of um, spaghetti, massive spaghetti type plants that you've got over here. This one one and this one. Is this a euphorbia or is this something completely different? No, that's a cyrigia. This one here, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, that's a cyrigia. I've never even heard of that. No, again, it's a Madagascan plant. Is is there a cordex under there? Well, it's a thickened root, really, basically. It's it's not such a fat thing, so it does have quite a lot of uh, normal root system on it. But this, again, is a training plant, and it will sort of creep up uh, amongst the branches and leaves of uh, other bushes and trees Mm, here. mm. But it is an odd-looking thing. It's very thin stems, almost sort of got a bit of a... Bit of a hairy situation going on. Them. <laughs> yeah, I just thought something about that caught my yeah, eye. I don't know why. Yeah. Are there any particular euphorbias specifically that you'd recommend to somebody who wants wanting to get started collecting some euphorbias and they've maybe got, I don't know, like me, they've got a euphorbia trigona that they got from the garden centre. Right. Where do you go next with euphorbias when you want to start sort of getting more into these plants? Well, I suspect that um, one of the more common plants that people are going to be able to get easily get hold of is something like euphorbia obesa, um, which is a South African plant. It's uh, a, a small rounded globular plant. There is one in the bed over there. You know what? That was one of my, as a child, that was a plant yeah. that I absolutely adored. Yeah. I mean, it goes <laughs> under various sort of common names, the tartan ball and stuff like mm. this. I mean, they're very attractive plants in their own right. But of course, they're produced by the millions in, uh, in Holland and mm. uh, various places. Mm. But strangely enough, they're not, um, they're, they're quite, uh, quite endangered in their natural habitat. Right. We visited one habitat of uh, Euthorbia obesa and it was quite decimated. In mm. South Africa, which is that because people have taken them from the wild? Yeah, a lot of it is. Mm. Yeah, mm. I and mean, this was on a protected area, um, and it was sponsored by the BCSS. Actually, it was a, mm. a place called Kendrew um, on a farmer's land, and he took us to the area. It wasn't quite near his farmhouse because you know these South African farms are quite vast. Mm. I mean, it was about mm. ten yes. drive away, um, but he was it was fenced as well. But he was quite upset because he said he actually had a school party come down from um, <coughs> from Cape Town to have a look round mm. at this habitat. And he said when he went back and uh, had a look, there was lots of holes where oh, plants gosh, had been taken yeah. away. Well, uh, it's a shame, isn't it? Because if you, as you say, if it's if it's produced easily, then why do you need to take it well, from the wild? But I guess exactly. that's the temptation of these fascinating exactly. plants on yeah. people. And is the care of that plant? like you would do a cactus or succulent lots of sun no yeah, water yeah, no, um, no water in winter and cool yeah, in winter generally speaking but it depends again where you're growing them you know right. what I mean you can probably grow these on a window ledge indoors quite easily in a good light position mm. and you can probably keep this thing growing all through the year yeah. I mean in this particular environment that I've got in the greenhouse everything tends to be a bit drier over the winter mm-hmm. kept warmer but drier um, and therefore they're not in active growth uh, mm. anymore. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the sort of thing that uh, most people will start off of, start off with um, if you want to start a euthorbia collection. And then 
you're probably getting to some of the milli types as well. I mean, they don't necessarily have to be the sort of bog-standard hybrid types of milli, mm. but you can get very easily uh, through some of the specialist nurseries things like this, which is um, it's not actually a milli, but it's very akin to a milli, you mm. know, and these are quite easy to grow, little sort of shrubby plants. I'm just looking at the label there. Uh, Euphorbia, what's, it, what's the Latin name on that one? It's a long one. <laughs> Antifactor. Antificiensis. Oh, okay. I like the little tiny lemon yellow flowers on that. It's yeah, very delicate. That's right. Yeah. Well, it's a fantastic collection. Um, are there, is there anything else in here that is your absolute baby that you would, you know, in the case of a fire, you'd be grabbing <laughs> it first? Is there anything that you really prize well, above all else? Yeah, I mean, there are one or two <laughs> things, really, I guess. I mean, um, although, uh, you know, you struggle to lift some of them in quickly. <laughs> I mean, I quite like this thing. This is Dorstenia gigas. Um, this is from the island of Socotra. And, I mean, again, compared to some of the plants that I've seen in habitat over there, this is still only a baby, but, I mean, it's a fairly substantial plant. How big would that get in the wild, then? I've seen them three and a half metres high. Oh, my gosh, OK. And sort of like about mm. almost a metre fat. So um, it's a, a really peculiar plant. So things like that, I mean, I would, uh, I would like to sort of like take that away with me. Um, <laughs> um, also, even going down to the small stuff, um, very much like this, Euthorbia gymnoclisioides. This is from Ethiopia. And if anybody's growing cacti and succulents, I mean, the gymnoclisioides label attached to it, of course, is because it very much resembles a gymnoclisium, the cactus mm. uh, Genus. You probably have more luck if you were rushing out in, away from a farm. Yeah. You probably have more luck picking that up because it's the size away. of a conqueror. Yeah, right. yeah, Just yeah. to tell me what what's the purpose of on those, the bigger plants over here? You've got some. Is that like a strap to lift it out when you repot, no, or no, is that it, some? It, it was a bit of um, uh, what do you call the stuff? Um, like um, matting. Yeah, the capillary yeah. matting. Capillary Sorry, matting. It, it yeah, escape me from it. <laughs> yeah, there's a bit of capillary matting goes down there to the. Um, to the uh, drainage hole. Ah, and, okay. Uh, occasionally, I just used to sit it in uh, a little uh, bath of water, so okay. it could soak. Because they love a drink; they really mm. do take a lot of water during the great season. So. Well, I guess with that size of that cordex, you can imagine. Yeah. I guess yeah. this is one of the things: is that we get sort of thinking, oh well, they're they're dry plants, so we mustn't water them. But so often in the growing season, you realise they can take on a lot of water. Indeed, they do. Yes, I mean, I think this is a misconception. It's also a misconception with a lot of cactus plants, actually, mm. that um, you, you know you don't need to water them very much. Well. Fact is, if you don't water them, generally speaking, they'll survive. They'll just sit there, I yeah, guess, and do nothing. But I mean, to grow successfully, they do yes. need a certain amount of yeah. water. And certainly, some of these succulents can take an enormous amount of water, much, much more than people probably will realise. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's very true. Well, that is a, that is an incredible looking plant. It, it, uh, I would love to see a three meter high one of those because that <laughs> is just stunning. Yeah. And is there anything that you kind of you've got a love-hate relationship with that you just just can't get rid of but can't really get along with there must be something that drives you nuts or well, you probably is, <laughs> it probably drives a lot of people nuts i mean there's one around the corner i keep pulling them out and throwing them away but oh um, i think i know what you're going to come <laughs> what i'm coming around to here yeah it's the old uh, mother of millions that's it, yeah. as they call I mean, it they, they come up <laughs> everywhere um, yes and i mean quite frankly they're quite an attractive plant mm, they're in, mm. in, in, nicely grown but uh, you'll never get rid of them. But uh, that's right, they are. But you know, ha and funny enough, 
Um, they are not um, very common in habitat. Oh, really? No. I mean, there's a Calanchoe tomatosa, which is sort of the hairy-leaved mm. one. Yes, yeah. Um, you very, very rarely see it in Madagascar. You will find it in various mm. places growing. But, I mean, it's sort of like a... Again, it's almost like the uh, Thorbjör obesa, bog-standard sort of house plant mm. being grown mm. in Europe, mm. basically. But, yeah, those things, I mean, okay, <laughs> they'll come up and go. And now, however yeah. much you try to get rid of them, there'll always be some sitting around somewhere. Indeed, indeed, very true. But very apart true. from that, no, I don't think so, really. I mean, I try to keep my plant collection down to stuff that I find attractive mm. to grow. Um, I think you'll find that... Um, some of the least attractive plants are some of the uh, rarest around. So, I mean, you know, mm. probably still, if we're sort of really passionate hobbyists, we do have a duty to, um, to sort of try and grow these things mm. as well. I'm just drawn, my eye's been drawn to something over here. I can see a calanco on here that has, is this where you propagated from yeah. leaves? And yeah. I've forgotten the, the, the species. This and this is, ah, these are yes. leaves taken from a plant that... We were in Madagascar last November, well, mm. about this time last year, actually. And um, these were leaves taken from a plant, and um, they are just um, stuck into the pumice there, and uh, they're regenerating. As easy as that? So, so just, just from the petiole the, the, they're right. growing? Yeah, yeah. Well, that, they're, they're lovely, yeah. aren't they? they They've got need, such a gorgeous colour. They do need... Um, they do need coming out now. Well, so what will you do with those now? You'll, will the original leaf be cut off or just allow yeah, it to die back? Or? That's the best plan. Yeah. Now. I'm going to make you a gift of that one. Oh, that's, that would be lovely. So, so how often have you been, managed to go to Madagascar and actually see these plants in the wild? Oh, we, or I, uh, my wife, Beryl's been with me and I've been yeah. with several Dutch mates. Mm. Um, Probably about five times now mm. we've been over the years. And um, as I say, the latest excursion was November last year. And every time we go, we either try to find somewhere different to go, mm. some different place to look at, but we're mm. always finding different mm. plants all over the place. Oh, well, it's, that must be wonderful to be able to see the plants yeah. in, their, in their setting yeah. and hopefully help you appreciate how to grow them a little bit better as well. Well, it <laughs> does to a degree. It does, yeah, because, I mean... One thing you do learn is sort of like a bit of a bit of the sort of soil composition that because mm. I always bring back soil samples with me and have them analysed. Oh, really? And one That's of the things I found that in mostly Madagascan habitats, you're talking about soil having a condition of about four and a half pH, oh. so it's fairly acid. Yes. And um, again, another thing I try and translate that here mm. uh, by using, if I can, rainwater, mm-hmm. or if not, I acidify. The, right. uh, the uh, tap water. I have to say, I do, I do, you know, I have lots of listeners who live in apartments and flats and don't have access to rainwater. But I have to say personally, and lucky as I am to have a garden and to have access to lots of water butts, I do love using rainwater on yeah. my houseplants. They do seem to like yeah, it. it um, you can get away with tap water for a lot of things, but I do definitely think that if mm. you can get rainwater, it's mm. a wonderful resource, isn't mm. it? I think so. Well, it has the added advantage as well, because with the number of plants that I've got here, you know, to water individually mm. is virtually impossible. So mm. you generally have to hose pipe them. So if I've yes. got a tub full of rainwater, I just pump it yeah. out of there. And it, it also negates the fact that you don't mark up leaves with sort yes. of the, um, uh, the salts and um, the... Yes. 
Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, I do love the rainwater. I, I have now got a milkman, an old fashioned milkman. And so when I get and I don't know if this is ridic- a ridiculous thing to do. And I don't really do it so much with my cacti and succulents, but more with my foliage plants. I do now find myself filling up when the mi- bottle of milk's finished. I go out to the water butt, fill it up with rainwater, bring it inside, bring it to room temperature. And so they get I don't know if it's any good for the plants, <laughs> but in my weird mind, it's it has some benefit that they're getting a little bit of calcium i don't know and i'm just rinsing out the milk bottle at the same yeah. time so i feel i feel quite good about that doesn't seem to have done any harm so far i guess we all have our little foibles well, we do. To water i mean you know you're talking about warm water as well keeping it warm before you water mm. plants a lot of people say well that's the best way to go don't, yes. don't do it straight out the tap because it's cold and i had a mate dutch mate of mine Every year he wakes up his plants by watering his plants directly out of his central heating boiler. So God oh, knows wow. what temperature that is. Wow, okay. <laughs> That's, That's interesting. I, I have been known to, if I've been in, desperate to water something and I've got cold rainwater, especially in the winter, I have been known to put yeah. it in the microwave <laughs> to heat it up quickly. The things yeah. we do for our plants, know, it's I amazing, know. isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And, and at this time of year, is this a quiet time of year when you're kind of not, not doing a lot of repotting and you're just... No. just in a holding pattern yeah, till that's spring. Right. Yeah, as I say, most things most things now are sort of uh, uh, getting into their dormancy. And mm. In fact, I mean, you know, even now, in middle of November here, we've got some really nice weather, mm. actually. Mm. Um, so, you know, I suppose winter's a bit late coming. But, yeah, yes. most things, as you can see, a lot of things haven't got leaves on. And mm. you can see a lot of things that have had leaves on are now starting to brown and wither and mm. drop in. Mm. So... Uh, that's the drawback. One of the drawbacks with having a succulent collection like this that you're forever hoovering, hoovering up uh, the leaves. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, it's a it's a wonderful collection. It's great to see, and it's obviously so well cared for and tended. I mean, this greenhouse is immaculate. I have to say, compared to Thank you my greenhouse <laughs> and a lot of greenhouses I come to see, it's very very neat and tidy. So. You obviously take great pride in your collection. So thank you very much for showing me around, Bob. Okay, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much to Bob for sharing his collection with me. And now there's time for a question of the week, which comes from The Scented Gent. What a wonderful Instagram handle. And The Scented Gent wanted to know how to get his Monstera Adansonii and his newly purchased moss pole, which actually I think looks like a pole with coir um, on it, uh, actually, uh, to make friends with each other. This is a really good question and something I hadn't really thought of explaining before, but this is something that is worth considering when you're looking to get a plant growing up a moss pole, particularly if it's coir. Uh, the plant won't just latch on and grow without any help. So you need to provide some kind of anchorage. And the thing that I usually recommend is something called German pins or mossing pins. So I just wandered into my local florist and said, can I buy a dozen German pins, please? And she sold me them for 40p. So they're pretty easy to get your hands on if you are anywhere near a florist. I'm sure you can buy them online as well. But hey, why not uh, buy them locally with zero packaging? They just literally went into my pocket. (laughs) So um, that's an easy way to get hold of these things. But what are they? Well, they're little metal pins about, well, you can get various sizes actually, but the ones I've got are about three centimetres, an inch and a bit long and about a centimetre wide and at the end they've got a little they're u-shaped but they've got a little bend in the end which is to 
uh, makes the end rather bigger. I'm not explaining this very well. Uh, they're kind of U-shaped uh, with a bump in the end. Um, and I'll post a picture in the show notes so you can see what they look like. Uh, and basically what you need to do is get your stem uh, nestled between the prongs of the U and push them into the coir or the moss gently so that the stem doesn't get crushed but that it is anchored in place and they should go in quite a long way. You need to angle them sideways and up or down usually to make them work. And you may take a few attempts to get them in the exactly the right position, but they work really, really well at holding stems in place. If you find that you've got really meaty stems of a monster or something and they are wider than the mossing pin, they are bendable. You should be able to widen them fairly easily. So make sure they're not crushing the stem. I'll put a little story on in Instagram to show you how this is done. But this way you should find that the adventitious roots of climbing plants start to appear and mesh with the coir. It also helps if you keep the coir slightly damp through misting. That way the plant is more likely to derive some benefit from being close to that source of moisture. So mossing pins or German pins are what you need. If, however, you're growing a plant on an obelisk, this is actually what my monster Adansonia is growing on. The thing that I've found that works really well are those tiny little clips that come on Phalaenopsis orchids, holding them to the stake. Now, I take all the stakes out of my Phalaenopsis because I really don't like the way they look and, and I let them trail. But I do save the stakes and I save those little clips, which I then use to clip my monster Adansonii stems in place. So if you've got some of those, you can use those. Alternatively, you can just buy little hair, tiny hair clips, which work just as well. You can either do them in the same colour as the obelisks, so they fade into the background, or go for a really blingy contrasting colour, if that's what the look that you're looking for. And just remember, when you're anchoring the moss pole into the soil, it's probably wise to have it going right to the bottom of the pot, because the taller it is, the more likely the plant will become top heavy. So anchor it really, really well. You can even use a couple of cable ties to attach it to the bottom of the pot. So it really is firmly in place because there's nothing worse than the whole thing toppling over. And yes, I have been there. Well, I hope that answers your question, the scented gent. And I'm sure that florists around the world will be running out of German slash mossing pins before you know it. If you've got a question for On The Ledge, drop me a line on the ledge podcast at gmail.com. That's all for this week's show. We'll be back next Friday when we'll be talking about the death months. Yes, how to get your houseplants through the winter period. So set your sad lamps to overdrive and your grow lights to full power. And I'll see you in a week's time. Bye. music in this week's episode was Roll Jordan Roll by The Joy Drops. The tracks Chiefs and Endeavour from Jazar and An Instrument the Boy Called Happy Day Gakana by Samuel Corwin. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. See janeperone.com for details. <laughs> <laughs>